Welcome to Film Grain, the official podcast of the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania and the Greater Erie Film Office. We are back, but still at home, still in the middle of a pandemic. This week, our guest is Joshua Prabanek of Public Herald. He's a filmmaker, journalist, and activist, and he'll be talking to us about his new documentary, Invisible Hand, premiering virtually this Thursday. I'm Erica Berlin, Executive Director of the Film Society of Northwestern PA. I'm John Lyons, filmmaker, teaching artist, and the Director of Programming for the Film Society. Hello, I am Samuel Sosie Wyatt. I am producer and owner of Retro United Inc. You know, we took a little hiatus in August, but we're back here in September and we want to welcome Sosi, who was a one-time guest. And we had a blast with you, Sosi, and we love having you on the show. So now we're going to have you on more often, sir. It was a pleasure and nice to be back. So what has everybody been up to the last month? I bet I know what Josh has been up to for the last <laughs> month and probably right up until five minutes before talking to us. <laughs> Joshua Perbanek, <laughs> director of uh, Invisible Hand and uh, co-founder of Public Herald. Yeah, thanks for having us on and good to meet you. Sosi, I haven't met you before. Yeah, we've, uh, we've been doing a lot of editing. Um, <laughs> Down to the wire. Uh, do you want me, I've been at Final Cut Pro X for like 45 days. So that's, that's where we've been. Nice. And Erica, you, you yeah. and Mike have had some, some big news. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've been busy for the past month. We moved uh, out of a very large house into a very small apartment. So we went through a lot of cleaning and giving away and selling an estate sale, two days of moving very heavy furniture, not me. I hired someone to do that. And now we're getting settled here. Went from out in the out in the burbs, out in the quiet with the birds chirping. Downtown, so it's city living. I'm enjoying it so far. I think Mike is. I think he is. But it's nice to be down by the bayfront. And Sosie, what have you been up to since we last spoke? Designing a web page for a friend, radio jingle, more music production, and enjoying third shift blues. <laughs> All in one. <laughs> so you did a jingle. Tell, tell us about this jingle. Well, they already had a concept that they wanted. Uh, they weren't really happy with the selection of music, so I came up with something quick. Uh, they needed a little bit of sharpening with the script, but they pretty much had it, so it was simple. Now, the website, that's all about desserts. If you ever get a chance, look up on Facebook, Infused by Undra, U-N-D-R-A. You're, if you have a sweet tooth, you'll enjoy it. Oh, I got a oh, sweet yeah. tooth. Yeah, I was going to say, John certainly does. <laughs> awesome. Well, good. And a good, good plug for them as well. I, um, you know, similar to Josh have, and Melissa have been um, getting ready for uh, Fantasia Film Festival and the debut of our film Unearth and been a whirlwind of a time off. It's nice to be back though. It is nice to be back. So Josh, uh, you said you're coming to us from where today? Where are you at? Bozeman, Montana. So I'm surrounded by uh, wildfires right now. You look out the window and you just see what used to be mountains now just a smoke cloud. It's actually, John, 
the perfect horror film setting that you could probably ask for. I mean, soon as sunset, sunrise comes around, I mean, this is, this is your jam. Unfortunately, you can probably say that for a lot of the earth, the more and more we, we get into a year after year of pollution and no bullshit, doubt. right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, so, as your film, you know, <laughs> so eloquently uh, displays. Josh, where do you come from originally? You're not a Pennsylvanian, correct? No, I'm not. I'm not from Montana either. I'm from uh, Lake Erie shoreline up on Sandusky, Ohio. So I grew up between Toledo and uh, Cleveland on the lakefront there. Cedar Point territory. Yeah, Cedar Point territory. You know, you grew up riding roller coasters, so pure adrenaline from, I don't know, you know, eight to 18. Nice. Well, we know what that's like here, Lake Erie shoreline. Yeah, you guys have a really beautiful part of the shoreline. It's nice and deep and stays cold. We have, Sandusky's lucky, we have a mix of a really good beachfront where Cedar Point is, and then that kind of like warm water bay side. But it usually doesn't get like Toledo who's featured in our film, Invisible Hand. And the reason they're featured is because that part of the lake is so shallow in Lake Erie, it heats up too fast. And because of the rush of all those, you know, the algal bloom in Lake Erie is one is a major, major problem. Um, but it's the, one of the biggest problems in Toledo. So because of all of the agricultural runoff, you know, and the over-nutrification of that land, it just settles in that bay over there. As soon as it starts to heat up, it just creates like the worst algal bloom in the country. Uh, and Toledo, of course, instead of just building riparian zones in every ditch that they have to try and stop this stuff from coming into the lake, just spend a bunch of money, you know, on their water treatment facility to try and deal with the toxic algae that's in the water. Uh, so, of course, your water bills are going to be higher. The water is not going to be as safe to drink. And uh, you're creating a whole dead zone <clears throat> in that part of the lake. So that became one of the uh, featured stories in the film, uh, which I guess we can, we can talk about later for sure. Oddly all enough. Right. Yeah. I went all across the country with this film and came right back to where I live. Coming home. Melissa Troutman, your, your partner at, mm -hmm. at Public Herald. Uh, she is from Pennsylvania, isn't she? Yeah. Melissa Troutman, who's the co-director of Invisible Hand, also the co-founder of Public Herald and couldn't join us today, unfortunately. She is from the Triple Divide in Pennsylvania, which is the beginning of all of the major, you know, most of the major East Coast river systems. You know, so the Mississippi River, for instance, part of it comes from the Ohio River, and that Ohio River comes from the Allegheny, and then Allegheny starts right where Melissa lives, like just down the road from her house. If you stand on that mountain, there are those three major rivers, the Allegheny, the Genesee, and then the Susquehanna, they all start right there. And, you know, a single drop of water can split and hit three different sides of the continent um, from that one spot. So it's a real phenomenal place where she's from, which was the focus of our first two documentaries, uh, Triple Divide and Triple Divide Redacted, uh, which was basically, you know, if you're going to frack somewhere, this is probably one of the worst places you could do it. <laughs> which you know john of course so of course we're gonna well. frack the hell out of it yeah, right frack the hell out of the area. <laughs> and of course you know as we were saying in the first film that hey this this stuff is getting closer and closer and closer to triple divide and it's getting worse and worse and worse and triple divide redacted it's like bam they blow out an aquifer they contaminate one of the rivers in triple divide 
for four mile radius. They lie about contamination to public water supply. State covers it up for them. I mean, it's just like, and none of that, none of that shit has changed. Um, so you still have this, the situations in Triple Divide happening right now. John's film is a horror film, but for us, it's like, that's just reality. <laughs> it looks like a horror film and it is scary. But you have to imagine, I just got off the phone with a, a new whistleblower up in Northeast PA. And the way she described her mental fears and everything going on with her was damn near identical to what I saw in John's film in, in Unearth. I mean, it's like a perfect representation of the horror that this woman was going through at her place. I mean, I rewatched Triple Divide in preparation for this podcast recording, and it just kind of blew my mind again. I mean, I had seen it years ago. I, what year did that originally come out? It's about eight years ago, Josh. Yeah, Triple Divide um, came out in 2013. So, okay. you know, seven years ago. Uh, and then Redacted came out in 2017. So. And, and did we screen Triple Divide Redacted, John? At I think we screened the original, I believe, okay. Josh. Okay. You guys did, yeah, two two great shows of the original. One at the Harry Art Museum, I think another one at Edinburgh mm-hmm. University. Um, they yeah, were we, excellent. We had great, I, I mean, they were some of our our favorite events for sure. I mean, you guys are, you know, which <laughs> already just in this brief conversation, right, is it's like these things people see probably in passing in the news, right, the mainstream, but you don't realize how how much of, you know, your lives you guys have dedicated to um, really exposing things that more people need to know about. And uh, always the Q&As are lively. I remember there was a surprise, Erica, at the Erie Art Museum. You know, there were yes. some former um, workers, uh, I believe, that were in the audience and uh, hearing their stories and experiences. You know, it's like, um, yeah, more more people need to need to hear these stories. For sure. Yeah, and more people need to be connected to those actually experiencing it. So, as you say, we had a surprise. I'd never heard from anyone, you know, outside of watching the doc that had gone through it. And it was very powerful. As I can recall, the gentleman that was there with you was animated. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, uh, he certainly got everyone's attention. And, and that was really, really powerful. So, I wonder... Triple Divide, Triple Divide, Redacted. Since then, your focus has certainly been on on fracking, but it's grown outside of the fracking areas to to look at a bigger issue that came up with fracking, which is the rights of nature, which is a legal concept. The way you describe it uh, just briefly is it's kind of democracy and the legal world and capitalism kind of all together. So could you tell us about the rights of nature? Yeah, the rights of nature is a a phenomenal concept. And for me, it's kind of uh, where I feel you know, the evolution of, of democracy will go, you know, eventually where you have, you know, the struggle with human rights and then you have this struggle with capitalism and capitalism is essentially raping the land to the point where it has to find a way to defend itself. The regulatory agencies have failed miserably and in every way, shape and form and have just kind of created um, a wall that you can't see 
of the kind of environmental destruction that's going on by building piles of paperwork and permits and things that they say are okay. But at the end of the day, the rights of nature is this just this phenomenal kind of organic ideology that uh, in order for nature to protect itself, in order for nature to be integrated into our society, it has to be given rights and be given personhood so it can defend itself in court the same way that we do under any circumstance when our rights are violated and the same way a corporation does when its rights are violated. You know, um, you think about how corporations are so powerful. The most, most of that power comes from the fact that they have rights and they're, they're treated as people. If they didn't have those rights, they would not be anywhere near as powerful as they, have, as they are right now. And that gives them the kind of authority and ability to take advantage of nature, exploit nature in every single way that they want to, only deal with regulatory agencies who don't hold them accountable in ways to prevent that kind of destruction. Whereas in the film, you see a community say, to hell with that. We're not doing what the state tells us to do. And we're not going to follow all these permits that you're going to put in front of us. And you're not going to dump this poison into, into our aquifer area and potentially contaminate our drinking water supplies. So we're going in a different route. And what they did was they passed rights of nature locally, which completely, you know, threw a curveball to the state, threw a curveball to the corporation. And I think really kind of unified their community around the idea that uh, they needed to protect that river and they had to make sure their drinking water was safe. And they were one of the first towns in the country, in the world, to attempt to bring an ecosystem into the court to defend itself against a corporation. So that's the, I don't know, exaggerated version of rights so in nature, you, the longer one. Sure. Okay. So when you talk about <laughs> the film and when you talk about that community, so tell us a little bit more about Invisible Hand and the community that you're referring to and how that community kind of expanded across the country. Yeah. So Invisible Hand started um, because Melissa and I were dealing with, you know, this, this end result after a triple divide screening, which is what are we supposed to do? Um, and in, oftentimes what you hear from like the traditional crowd is like, well, you can pass zoning laws and you can pass ordinance laws um, or you can, uh, you know, you know, solicit your senator, congressman and, you know, try and deal with it that way. Um, and we, we started to film those things. We started to film zoning and ordinance and other kind of things that people were working on, which I'm very familiar with. I studied in college and thought it was a good solution to issues. Uh, and then I just watched it get annihilated by um, corporations who wanted to put a well pad next to a school, for instance, and were able to do so despite the most stringent zoning laws in Pennsylvania and the best lawyers in Pennsylvania and the most money they needed to fight that case. Um, so we watched it fail really quickly. Uh, and uniquely enough, we're, you know, seeing all this goes, goes down and Melissa gets a tip that um, Grant Township has taken on rights of nature. And we're like, what? This town of 750 people and outside of Indiana, Pennsylvania is going to pass uh, rights of nature laws to defend itself against an oil and gas permit. And we were shocked. Um, so we immediately went there and started filming, interviewing everybody and realized how unique these, these folks were and how they um, really had a hand on everything that was going on. Um, and, it then we began to be able to shape the film, which was we've always been fascinated by rights of nature. It was something I gave, you know, a speech on at Bowling Green State University in like 2010. It's something I wrote my wrote my business plan on back in like you know 2006 and seven. I've 
always thought this was like a, a the perfect kind of legal structure for where democracy can go and where communities can go to try and protect, you know, where whatever problems that they have. And that developed in Pennsylvania. So the film brings you back to Pennsylvania to 2006 <clears throat> in Tamaqua Borough, where a woman was stopping, you know, a landfill from, you know, spreading sewage waste or I'm sorry, from uh, a company that wanted to think spread sludge in fields, you know, sewage waste in fields and that kind of thing. Um, she passed the rights of nature law to try and prevent that. And it takes you back to Ecuador in Ecuador where they changed their constitution to put rights of nature into the constitution and then be able to build a legal framework um, for the whole entire country to defend the ecosystems that are there. Uh, and then you go to places like the Maldives who of course are, uh, under serious threat um, with climate change of just being drowned out entirely. Um, so they've been, you know, dealing with rights of nature laws with uh, their former president, who of course has been ousted uh, and is still struggling to try and raise that country up. Um, and then you come back to the States and you start to see this concept be talked about in, you know, the fights over at Standing Rock, for instance, in 2016. And that gets brought back to, you know, uh, indigenous communities in Wisconsin, Minneapolis, um, some parts of New York and Pennsylvania. Um, they then start to pass laws giving, you know, rights to their rice, for instance, which is a important part of their tradition. And then you have probably one of the biggest stories in how the rights of nature kind of gained more traction globally, like Grant Township, you know, was in Rolling Stone. We covered it really well. There was a, a ton of interest in Grant Township when that happened. Um, but the story that really blew everything up was was the Lake Erie Bill of Rights over on Lake Erie. And that got national attention. When, when people heard that and they found out that they were going to give rights of nature to international waters, it's on every mainstream news source. But, you know, corporations, of course, dug in deep and figured out a way to to block that effort that they did in Toledo, which you'll see in the film, you know, what kind of radio ads they ran and commercials they ran and everything else to, to confront this concept. Um, yeah. So on uh, Thursday at the premiere, we're essentially going to see the story uh, of Grant Township of Bill of Rights for the lake like, without spoiling things. I mean, does it, do you feel hopeful yourself um, by the end of the film, does it give you know a bit of a, a how-to for communities uh, that are absolutely, John? Yeah, this is the maybe the the most hopeful and most exciting film I'll, I'll likely ever make. Where you know at the end we have three of the four communities with wins. We've got Grand Township with a win. We've got the Defend Ohio, who's in the film, which is a fight that happened on the Triple Divide with the Seneca Nation of Indians. Um, they have a win. We've got Standing Rock, who also has a win. With the, with the recent judge who said all the oil that's inside of that line needs to come out, which they're, they're on their way to potentially ripping that pipeline out entirely. Libor is the only one that's, that's hanging in the air. Um, but Libor could still be a win. You know, they could still get the state Supreme Court to bring a case and, and, and change what happened in Ohio. Ohio is like a, the exact opposite of Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, you still have local control over what your community wants. You can still, you know, take take back control from the state under home rule. You can pass home rule. 
past rights of nature and then ban specific things like oil and gas or injection wells or that kind of thing. Ohio lost that privilege in wow. 2000 and I don't know, 14 or 15 or something. When the Supreme Court over there, you know, voted like five to four to say that municipalities could not preempt the state and draw up laws to, to ban things that the state said they were going to permit for their community. Um, so that that's one of the struggles that Ohio has is that they've lost their the teeth of their home rule law to govern locally. How does uh, Mark Ruffalo come into the into the picture for you guys and, and for this film as well? Uh, well, you know, Mark has just been um, tremendous in, in supporting uh, the work we do. I mean, I know you've probably seen you know the films that uh, have come out with him, like Spotlight and Dark Waters and all those other things. So, you know, we've always been back and forth with Mark about how we're digging in files to do these stories. And Mark's like showing that on screen. At the same time, this is kind of a cool dynamic, but he's been really supportive of, you know, the fact that we need something stronger, something bolder and, and something more revolutionary to, to get our environmental catastrophes under control. So when he saw Invisible Hand, when he saw this Rights of Nature film, it really like grabbed hold of him and he thought, yeah, this is something that I think can work and I think could be the right direction for everybody, you know, going down the road. He's executive producer in this film, and he's also um, the narrator. So you'll hear him as the narrator throughout. When I purchased my ticket for the premiere, uh, which anyone can do, by the way, if you go to invisiblehandfilm.com, you can get a ticket. Um, after I bought the ticket and I came back to the website, there was an explicit call to action. And thanks for buying the ticket. Okay, now what level of... Uh, action are you comfortable with? Would you like to write letters? Would you like to give money? Would you like to, to show up somewhere? And I thought that was really exciting because as you say, you came away very hopeful, but there's still a lot more to do. And uh, I think at that moment after you, you know, if you, as the credits roll on invisible hand, there's going to be a lot of people who want to do something. So no I'm doubt. sure that in the virtual premiere and your Q and A afterwards, you'll probably get into a little bit more of what people can do in their communities. Cause I actually didn't realize that uh, there was a difference between the local governments between Ohio and Pennsylvania. I didn't know that. <laughs> I'm sure there's different, uh, different rules or different laws in each state. So uh, maybe you'll find some experts in other states that can uh, contribute. And when the, the rights of nature argument and the Native Americans fight for land rights I just yesterday saw uh, the testimony of a member of the Native American tribe out uh, down south who was fighting for the exact same thing against border wall that is going up um, in their in their area on sacred land and he was brought to tears uh, testifying saying you know this this is blowing up land that is very sacred to us um, to, you know, put up that border wall. And uh, I wonder if there's any other um, organizations or groups that you've come across in your, in your press or in your film that you didn't really get a chance to, to discuss, but you're looking forward to in the future. Yeah, you mean like community groups and environmental groups? Um, yeah, yeah. Taking this stuff on? You know, the, the border wall situation is, is uh, extraordinary. You know, the idea that under any existing country at this point, um, we would still allow 
for these man-made structures, these walls to go directly through a watershed or directly through um, an ecosystem. I mean, it is like a, a knife in the back uh, to nature, essentially. You know, the idea that there's not animals migrating from one side of the board to the other uh, outside of just people um, or anything else that, that, you know, needs to function an ecosystem cannot function when it comes to walls, you know, or the, these, these types of structures. Um, and that, that's just uh, phenomenal that we would even have the ability under existing law to approach an idea like that. For sure. There's the, um, there's a line five fight, which I really wish I could have been able to cover, uh, which has been happening up in Northern Michigan. Uh, we know where they want to build Enbridge wants to build this pipeline underneath the lake. And the latest is that in order to keep it safe, they want to, they want to create a tunnel to go under that lake, put the pipe in that tunnel and therefore there'll be an extra barrier. Uh, and this is some of the tar sands type oil too. You know I mean? You're talking about like the worst of the worst. So if it does spill, it's not like your traditional oil that wants to just float to the top. It actually gets like like stuck materials and rocks all on the bottom and it, it's not coming off like a glue. So you can't like scrub it off. It's just like a, it's a complete disaster. One of the most expensive um, oil and gas cleanups in the country is outside of Kalamazoo in Michigan because of an oil tar sand spill. So you can imagine what would happen, you know, if a, a pipeline like that, if the line five pipeline did leak out and did get into the lake. I mean, you, you can't get that shit out. So you're going to be stuck with it for a really, really long time. Um, there were some fights in Oklahoma that we wish we could have gotten to the film uh, with the Blackfeet and some other uh, indigenous nations that were there. You know, I was glad to see that they won half of their state back uh, recently. So, you know, half of Oklahoma went back to the indigenous communities. Thank goodness. But that was a, that was a shocking place to film and a shocking place to be a part of probably one of the most um racist places i've ever filmed in my life uh where i was with a journalist from al jazeera and i was also with of course the indigenous groups that were there as well some elders literally like uh congressmen uh, were coming up to these people and just shouting racial slurs at them in the middle of uh public meetings trying to riot the local people into basically looking at them as uh, as terrorists and driving them out of the room and then these were you know renowned journalists broadcasters and that kind of thing being treated this way who were, who were coming to report on oil and gas and then all of a sudden they're finding out this entire other you know evil culture that lives out there in oklahoma um, but oklahoma had some of the worst i think it's the worst laws environmental laws in the country uh, and the worst oversight in the country when it came to fracking specifically. Um, so that place would have been really great to open up. I mean, I remember there was a, a whistleblower up at Oklahoma State University who shared information with us about radioactivity getting into the drinking water of where the college students were drinking and showering. And basically, T. Boone Pickens owns that place. And he just sent them a big chunk of donation money um, at one of their football games and they received a new water filter system, which as far as I know, can't remove radioactivity. Um, and they sent letters out to all the college students saying, hey, it's gonna be okay, don't worry about it. You know, go back to drinking and washing. <laughs> and uh, you know, you're a college student. What do you know about radioactivity from oh fracking in your water? <laughs> you don't know shit about that. You're like, ah, oh, two Pico Curies per liter, it's good. 
you know, throw it away. It's okay until <laughs> somebody grows like a eleventh, you know, finger. So it's just like <laughs> totally. Yeah, it's like you know, unless until the kids start getting, you know, bone cancers, malignant bone tumors, which is what that shit will cause. You know, it's not going to be a problem. But the fact is, is that you know that that's the kind of culture that was in Oklahoma, where here we are looking for you know public water supplies who've been impacted in Pennsylvania, and here we are in Oklahoma where they're sending out letters to college students saying, "Hey, there's radiation in your water. You know, no big deal. T Boone Pickens gave us some money. Um, we'll get it fixed for you. You know, you don't need to ask any questions." So talk to you later. It was, so that place was very scary for sure. My God. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, so, so John, your yes. movie that is premiering at Fantasia Film Festival. It has premiered. Yes. Congratulations, John. Thank That's you awesome. so much. It was amazing. Yeah. So John, your film is about, well, it's an eco horror film. And it actually is about fracking. So going back years, because I know it takes years to get a movie going, where did your inspiration come from? And was blame, your... Blame Josh and Melissa. I was going to say, well, I was getting there. So, so you know, what, what influence did Josh and Melissa have on, on your film? Again, I think that anyone uh, with any empathy at all, um, any humanity at all that <laughs> reads... The stories of Public Herald, um, which is Josh and Melissa's news source, independent independent journalism is very important these days, uh, especially in a state of Pennsylvania that is so deregulated and so pro-business um, that you know you're you're not going to find out this information anywhere else um, to protect yourself and your kids and your neighbors. Um, as Josh was just alluding to in Oklahoma, you know, people, it's out of sight, out of mind, right? So uh, you don't realize what's what's in your water until down the road, if you're lucky, and then you're not lucky. So watching their film, uh, and also Josh Fox's Gasland was, you know, Gasland was like my gateway in, into all of this. And then I felt that Josh and Melissa's Triple Divide was somehow more accessible and more informative at the same time. I, I feel like it is a very, very solid doc. And I've told you this a lot many times before, Josh, you know, sang your guys' praises at, a, at our events um, that we've hosted with you. But, you know, just boiling it down to a way that everybody can understand how scary this shit is. And it's going on and it's underground, mile, a mile, miles underground. It had a really profound effect on me. So ever since then, I, f I follow everything Public Herald writes about. And maybe, Josh, actually, this kind of leads into um, something I, I was hoping we could touch on as far as the leachate, the radioactive leachate, and how there may be, it's not clear, but there are landfills, and there might be one in northwestern Pennsylvania. I don't know if we want to say the name. That may be accepting. Oh, they are. <laughs> radioactivity is a <laughs> is a byproduct of the fracking process, right, Josh? Like you're gonna pull up radioactive material in the yeah. In I think as we say in the article, it's like you know if you're talking about fracking, you're talking about T norm, and T norm is the radioactivity that's littered throughout the process of fracking. You know what's basically deep in the shale formation, you have naturally occurring radioactive material, uranium, thorium, things like that. 
Um, and when those break down, they create things like radium. And when you go down and you pulverize those shale formations, and then you shoot down a bunch of chemicals and liquids and then put the radium, which is water soluble into the solution. And then you draw all that stuff back up, the waste, um, the solids, the, the liquids and whatnot. You are creating one hell of a radioactive material, which has levels of radium higher than anything I've ever seen anywhere. I don't know where else I can look at a document and find 26,600 picocuries per liter of radium. The safe drinking water limit for radium is five. Five, five. per <laughs> This is 26,000 oh picocuries per liter. And that shit is going to a landfill. A landfill is like, oh, you know what we'll do? We'll take that water and we'll soak these wood chips with it. And then we'll throw those wood chips up on a landfill. And that's a solid. Now it's a residual waste and we're going to put it up there. Because well, you've gonna... legally changed the definition of what that <laughs> material is by totally. soaking it in wood chips. So all of a sudden it no longer becomes fracking waste. Now it's just a sludge with wood chips in it and you can do whatever you want with it then. Yeah, it's a residual sludge. You, you, you got to cover your trash with it so the trash doesn't blow off. That's right, what that's mean. what they do. <laughs> so the trash doesn't blow off the landfills. They coat it with this stuff. So the, this is the new thing because, uh, well, the, the new thing, I guess. The new thing you guys have been focusing on that keeps me up at night is that, so if you keep fracking out of your backyard, if there aren't shale, you know, if there isn't um, shale underground where you live, mm-hmm. well, you can be importing everybody else's waste into your backyard and then they'll take it to the landfill and then eventually it's going to end up in like the water treatment plants and sewage treatment plants right josh so it could end up back in your drinking water absolutely yeah there's no there's no reason to think that drinking water at some point has not taken in um, some amounts of this radioactivity and then you've ingested it and this basically the safe level for you to ingest is zero Um, there's not this maximum contaminant level of five picocuries per liter is just whatever. They just throw that thing out there. If you ask any kind of toxicologist or health expert, you know, the idea is you should not be drinking excess amounts of radium at any point in time. Um, it's not going to hurt you if you stand next to it. It's not that kind of radiation. Radium isn't a, it's an alpha wave. So because it's an alpha wave, it'll shoot waves at you and those waves will bounce off your skin and it won't be able to hurt you. But if you got radium going in your body and it's firing these alpha waves, that's when you start to get into the mutagenic cancers and, and those kinds of things. Cause uh, it only takes 1600 years for the radium to break down. So it ain't going nowhere. It's in your body. You're going to be, it's going to be hanging out with you for a long time. So you, you think about what's happening in Pennsylvania based on this map that we published, there's 30, 30 of these landfills across the state that are taking this oil and gas waste. And one of them is next to you. It's a Lakeview landfill. So according to the DEP records that they had online, um, these guys were collecting or had collected um, oil and gas waste in some way, shape or form. So because of that, if they have a storage of this T-norm, um, this technically enhanced naturally occurring radioactive material. If they have a storage of that there and it's raining, that rain will then pull out the radium, put it into the leachate, send that leachate in most cases to sewage plants or plants that are not equipped to handle radium. Uh, at that point, hundreds of thousands of gallons per day from one landfill gets sent to the sewage plant and the sewage plant can't treat that. The T-norm, radium, radioactivity, goes right through the sewage plant into the streams. 
and just in the streams, then, dil- you know, they dilute it. They basically just create this dilution system. And that may be fine for, I don't know, if you do it for like a week, but we've been doing it for shit, 10 years now. The New York Times almost got on this. They were like right there back in 2010, 2011. They had Ian Urbina and Ian Urbina was like right at the, right at the landfill about to, to write this story. And they sent him out to sea somewhere and he did some story about like uh, pirates and other types of shit happening out to sea. And he's not, he wasn't on the fracking story anymore. Um, but he was the one who could have really blown this open. Uh, I think back in like 2011 before we did um, in 2019. And that would have been great because unfortunately we've just been sending out <laughs> this, uh, this radiation into rivers all across Pennsylvania, actually. For like a, a decade or decades before anybody even comes. The state knows it. it. That's the worst part about it. The DEP knows it. They did a 2016 T-norm study. Those so levels. these are the reported state levels. Yeah, these reported state levels. It's not like, it's not like uh, activists went out and found you know, leachate and that's the number we gave you. Now, this is what the state studied and released a report on in 2016. And they just buried it. You know, they came out with a press release making it sound like there was no problem. You know, I mistakenly was too caught up in our complaint cases, our complaint investigations and drinking water. I couldn't go read it in detail. And then I watched Atomic Homefront on HBO. Um, Atomic Homefront is this awesome documentary about the future of Pennsylvania landfills, essentially. Um, But it deals with a landfill in the West who was storing the same kind of radioactive waste. And then the cancer cluster that happened um, around that community and the radium that blew off as dust or other things into people's houses. And it's just a phenomenal film. So I, I watched that and I was like, shit, I got to go back and read that study. And I did. And I went, as soon as I read the study, I was like, I was just sitting there thinking like, going to be at least two years of research to write this story because I just knew how bad it was in, in Pennsylvania after I started connecting the dots after seeing that doc and, Looking, reading through the DEP study. So looping back so around to, enough, yeah. that we have issues with the pipe system in throughout America, but now it's just throwing some radiation. Is it safe to even think that they will possibly like gain some kind of common sense to initiate some kind of plan to reverse this? Even though I don't think that's possible, how do you take radiation from water? I mean, once you're in a situation, which is what I'm, what I'm looking at, which is that they're, they're just accumulating radium in the sediment in these rivers. And I can't get clear data on how much is or is not going into a drinking water plant because they're only required to test for radium once every five years. So good luck that one test in that five years, figuring out if the radium is in there and how much is in there. You know, you'd have to test every day you know, at least once a day. And the only way you can even find the radium and how much is in there, the the water has to sit for 21 days, 21 days for you to figure out how much radium is in there. Cause you got to wait for the decay chain to happen. And then they test one side of the decay chain before radium. And then another side of the decay chain after radium. And then they figure out how much is in the middle. And that's how they determine how much radium is there. And the test that they use most often in the state is something they call the 900 series test. And according to experts in Ohio who reviewed this test, you're going to get anywhere from 1% to maybe 50% of what's actually in the substance. Okay. So you're not going to know in your water tests based on that particular type of test, if there's radiation in there. So you got to know if the drinking water facility that's testing 
is using a 900 series or are they using a gamma spectroscopy? Because if they use gamma, it's good. If they use 900, it's not. So there's like all these different loopholes to get around figuring out whether or not the radiation's in there. That Then then you got the truck issue. The landfill's taking on these uh, trucks with the waste. The trucks, they hold a, a handheld Geiger counter or they have a gate system. And the gate system and the Geiger counter both test for the gamma waves. They test for high levels of uranium and, and thorium. But remember, that, that uh, that's not what's in this fracking waste. It's, the majority of it is low-level radioactivity. So the majority of it is the alpha wave. It's the radium. So you hold up that, you might as well hold up a banana to that truck. You're going to get the same <laughs> result if, you know, <laughs> when it comes to reading radium. And then I got the DEP telling me, well, Josh, you know, the, we're, we're, we're testing all the trucks that come in, you know, they're limited to this much T norm per year. And I'm like, what the, you guys aren't testing these trucks. You got them running through these gate systems. You're not, you're not, te- you're not stopping the load. You're not taking a sample and you're not figuring out is this X amount of T norm in per ton, right? They say, well, they can only take 2000 tons of T norm per year or something, right? I've never seen a landfill be in violation of a T norm tonnage. You know, it's like the the largest landfill in the state, uh, 7 million, like 500 tons, I think they took in or something last year. They're pulling every every bit out of there so that they have accurate data of what's in that landfill. What are you, what are you talking about, Josh? We, they know everything that's coming in and out of there. They are inspecting that shit, literally. <laughs> yeah, I, we should just move. They, got, they know what's going on here. It's time to go somewhere else. It was just a quick question. So just drink bottled water, yes or no? Oh, that's a whole other thing. Yeah, it's not actually not a simple answer there. Yeah. Unfortunately, you'd have to figure out the source of the bottled water. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's a, it's a bad deal. It's a real bad deal. They're knocking out so many water supplies. Yeah, you're under false pretenses. Just because it's in a plastic bottle doesn't necessarily mean anything. Not even that, really. Like, I know there's different types of water, sadly. How about this? Let me revise my question. What would be the best water to drink in this situation currently? The best water to drink is usually aquifer. If you can get your own aquifer and you can have your aquifer tested, you know, Protect um, that aquifer. And then you need to protect that aquifer if the, if the water's clean. Uh, and then the other good option is the public drinking water can be the best option. If you have a community that's diligent and they go to the public drinking water facility and they make sure that that drinking water facility is following the guidelines, is testing everything, and is, and is looking for things like radiation, for instance, or the DuPont chemicals like uh, PFC, PF, PFAS, the ones that Mark, Mark Ruffalo did in his film, Dark Waters. You know, If they're looking for those things and, and you're diligent with them and, and you, you have some kind of relationship between um, you know, the drinking water company and the community, you know, it could be your best option at that surface water source. You have um, to be like active and informed, like really informed. And the, the tests are really expensive, right, Josh? Like a lot of times those water tests can be like. Expensive. Yeah, for us, you know, if, if we want, so if we want to find out if there's, you know, all the volatile organic compounds in there, the, the B-tex and the benzene, xylene, and that type of stuff. And then we want to find out if the radiation's in there. You know, we're looking at the cost of a test being like a thousand to $1,500. And who, who the hell can just drop a thousand or $1,500? So, you know, it has to be a situation where you partner with the university and the university takes this stuff on um, or the state or local community creates a way to make sure that your stuff can be tested like they're doing in, in Pittsburgh, you know, where they're sending out kits to try and get the water tested for lead. 
But at the same time, I mean, it, it, it really needs its own watchdog. I mean, every community, unfortunately, uh, needs to have their own drinking water watchdog set up because it's, you know, it's the first thing we do every day. Get, you know, take a shower, get some coffee or something. And it's the last thing we do, brush our teeth. And that should be, you know, our number one concern is uh, what the hell is going on with our water. So how does one find their local aquifer? So if you're if you have in the city in an apartment, you're you're shit out of luck. <laughs> you. <laughs> uh, your aquifer is probably gone. Um, but you know, if, if you're you know in a rural area, then you could contact a water well driller, and the water well driller will come out and drill a well. And they're usually like anywhere from like 100 to 300 feet, and then you can get that water tested. And if there are problems with it, then you can create your own filtration system, uh, your own treatment system uh, to get it into your house and, and go from there. But, you know, in places like where Melissa's from up in Triple Divide, you know, their, their family never had to have filtered water at their house. They only recently got it because of the gas drilling that's up there. And that's some of the cleanest water I've ever seen in the state. So you can just drill a well and you've got clean, free water for a lifetime. I live on the lower east side of Erie, Pennsylvania, man. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm drilling through cement. The, the closest soil that is near me, if I drill that, I'm probably going to get arrested on somebody else's property. Yeah. So. <laughs> so the best thing for Erie is like, you know, what's the surface, what's the surface water source? That they take it out of is the surface water source being tested for all the radiologicals is it being tested for all the vocs is it being tested for all the pfcs which is the the new dupont chemicals and if you're in the clear with that stuff you know then it's like are you also in the clear for everything else the heavy metals the arsenic and and that and if, if you're not then is it possible to to remediate that water supply to remediate that drinking water source to make sure that you can be at those levels and if that's not possible then you need to move to a new drinking water source. You need to move the drinking water plant to another creek, to another location where they can take out clean water and get it to the folks in Erie, PA, you know, or any, anywhere else in the state. The loop all the way back around, that's why this is like all perfect fodder for, unfortunately, for a horror movie. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. And then when you were talking about like bottled water, I mean, then you get into the whole situation of then that's going to be corporate owned and then we're all yeah. going to, you know, be be stuck having to pay coca-cola or who owns our water and just make them more money and then more pollution and just the cycle continues it's like you should not be allowed to to knock out aquifers and still survive as a company in pennsylvania and they're literally knocking out aquifers every week in this state where they drill they're just one after the other you know and it's just the most, the most criminal act because when you kill an aquifer, when you put those poisons in that aquifer, in most cases, according to the hydrogeologists, you can't clean that thing. Yeah, there's it's no stu- going it's back. stuck there. You know, you can't get it out of there. They, the state tries to fall back on this treatment program, <laughs> which is total bullshit. And they call it uh, natural attenuation. And natural attenuation is just waiting for the chemicals to be gone. <laughs> it, don't mean, it don't mean a damn thing. It's not, it, there's no treatment involved. You're just, you're just putting a word on. Just you know, time. Just live with it. Time. You're, you're putting a word on, just, just live with it. Yeah, it only takes like, about 1,600 years, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the, the time is, is pretty ripe for there to be an implosion in Pennsylvania about drinking water with, with the radiation issue that we reported on 
with the lead issues that all the cities are facing, um, and then with our, our constant need to need healthcare as a result, probably of drinking water itself, you know, because of, of what we're dealing with, not having a consistent, clean supply um, of drinking water from from these different uh, different government agencies. So that might be your next film, my next film, John, the, the uprising. That's right. I can, I can talk to you about what I'm, what I'm writing now for there sure. You your, your leachate is definitely a part of it. So I get, I guess, Josh, before we wrap up, I'm curious, you know, obviously uh, as you and Melissa were wrapping up Invisible Hand as Dorota and I were with Unearth, we were not planning for a pandemic and we were planning for, you know, the usual big premieres, people getting together uh, physically, you know, how, how are you finding your way through this uncharted territory and to the virtual screening premiere? Um, and what plans do you guys have for the film after the screening this Thursday? Well, as you know, as a filmmaker, there's nothing better than getting a daily challenge of what the <laughs> hell we're supposed to do in these situations and things that we've never dealt with before. It's not hard enough, Josh. Just yeah. <laughs> just making a film is not hard enough. We need we need more obstacles. That's uh, a real struggle, John. It, the the community element of doing a public show of the films that we have is really essential because we can we can look people in the eye, we can we can hear the emotions, and we can talk to them. You know, it's it's a critical part of of building the kind of relationships and, and, and building the kind of activism that you need after you see these problems happen. So I, my, my challenge is two things. One is to make sure that you can show the film online and have a Q&A and have that as a success, which, you know, we're basically just going the Vimeo route. You know, Vimeo, you're going to get like a password to come in to see the film. And then for Q&A, we're broadcasting um, everybody on YouTube. So, you know, we have somebody in a room, you know, pressing all the buttons and bringing in new screens and new people. And, you know, we have an engineer for that. The real, I think the real challenge for us is the fact that, you know, we have, I don't know, there's like over four or 500 tickets for that thing right now online. And I can't get them all in the same room. You know, they might be in that YouTube chat saying stuff to each other, but they're not going to be able to communicate directly with each other the way they could afterwards. So our challenge is trying to figure out a way to get all of them onto some kind of public forum. And it might be Discord, you know, because uh, Patreon's using Discord to try and connect people. You know, Fantasia's using Discord as well. So that's so interesting you, you brought that up. So it might be Discord. And, uh, and then that way we can start to establish the relationships that we would normally see after screening because you know losing that is just devastating for me to think about you know that, that you would uh, you, you, it's it's so amazing to to be a publisher you know and publish a film you know and, and direct and produce a film and get somebody to, to watch something for 90 minutes you know and pay attention to something for like that is some phenomenal shit like we don't get to have that with anything right we get like uh, you might get you for like two minutes if i'm talking to you right but yeah. a film you can really like get people to like be so intimate and absorb it and kind of like filter it through through themselves powerful um and you want to make sure that at the end you can make those connections so our challenges in the future going down the road um There'll be screenings that you can you can do virtual screenings, which we'll have on invisiblehandfilm.com. Um, so, for instance, if your screening's in Erie, PA, then we'll host it on invisiblehandfilm.com/erie, 
and you'll be able to have your screening there. You'll be able to have your Q&A, whether it's Zoom or YouTube or whatever. The take action thing, which Erica talked about, that's like one of the, the elements that we're going to work into there, which is like you can you can take action with us directly and you can contact us and we'll set you up. Or you can join, you know, this Discord community and hopefully, you know, work with each other there. And uh, that, yeah, that's going to be interesting let's see how that goes so we've got we got a lot of plans though for screenings i mean there's there was supposed to be a screening um going on within like like 60 different riparian corridors of the mississippi river you know we've got people from all over the world contacting us to do shows uh from italy from france uh from germany from amsterdam sweden south america i don't know if we have anybody now i'm getting excited yeah man it's pretty cool (laughs) i mean are you guys willing to to wait it out to on on some of these like as far as a tour i'll probably just i don't know melissa and i haven't talked about it much you know we haven't talked about what what'll be like the right plan for this but i mean i'll i'll probably say you know let's just hit the ground uh let's just hit the ground running and she's usually down for that so uh, i imagine that's what we'll do see see what happens you're at the precipice of a really cool story being told hopefully opening a lot of eyes i'd say anyone who is listening to the podcast that hasn't seen triple divide needs to watch that first i have the dvd from when you were in town i wonder how how can someone watch triple divide now um you can still get uh, i think there's maybe like a dozen dvds left that we've been like holding on to (laughs) I might give some away. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I have parcel of those things. We did a couple prints of that thing too. It was it was successful on DVDs. But you can do it online. You can go to you can just type in Triple Divide documentary and you can either rent it from Vimeo, um, you know, or find it another way. And then there's uh, Triple Divide Redacted, which is being distributed by Bullfrog Films. Um, so you can rent it through them, um, or you can rent it through. Um, through us, you can go to uh, publicherald.org slash, you know, triple dash divide slash redacted. <laughs> <laughs> You'll find it somewhere in there. Um, <laughs> and then invisible hand, um, your people can uh, request a screening if they want to have one in their community. Sure. Um, when will it, do you have an idea as far as timeline of individual rentals or digital downloads, that kind of thing. I think we're actually going to roll with uh, digital downloads and rentals right away, um, right afterwards. And then uh, the DVDs will come, I think a month or two after that, probably in November, we'll be shipping out DVDs to everybody who pre-ordered. So that'll be exciting. And what's upcoming? I'll just mention it again. Uh, September 4th, the virtual premiere of Invisible Hand. So you'll be screening the film and then afterwards a Q&A filmmakers, including Mark Ruffalo, correct? And mm-hmm. uh, questions from the virtual audience. So you can go to invisiblehandfilm.com and buy tickets or you can become a supporter. Yeah, you can become a Public Herald patron and get tickets to the show for a dollar. Uh, and if you don't want that dollar to keep coming to Public Herald every month, you just cancel it and you're good. No worries. There you go. But, but you should. You should, yeah, you should, or at least pay the fifteen dollars for the ticket. Oh yeah, I, I really hope people, uh, you know, get behind us. We have an amazing team that's being developed right now, and I mean, I'm we're literally like I'm one of like twenty five people working on stuff at Public Herald all across the country, and you know, some really like you know young and upcoming talented minds, and some folks who've been in this business for a long time that 
you know, have a lot of wisdom to share. Um, so any support you can give is a, is a big deal to everybody. Thank you guys for doing this for all of us. <laughs> yes, thank you very much. And thank you for being with us today. Um, our pleasure. Thank you for having us on. Thanks for everything you're doing. So there's too. no particular water that you would say is okay to drink outside <laughs> the aquifer. Water is it West Caribbean <laughs> volcanic water? Is it Yeti water? Is it triple virgin water? Uh, triple divide. You gotta go there, bag it, and then you gotta go to uh, Montana, same place. Oh. Find some there, bring it back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot you want to bring a lot but not oklahoma do not, not oklahoma. drink oklahoma's water do not i mean i, I mean oklahoma because you said yeah 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 you know oh okay everything there it's just like you don't want i, I mean <laughs> oklahoma is something else yeah okay just have to take a jab to oklahoma I'll deal with that later. All right. <laughs> this episode was brought to you by the state of Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, oh, Josh. Bye. That's been our episode. Check out Invisible Hand this Thursday, September 4th at 6 p.m. Tickets are available at invisiblehandfilm.com. And remember, following the film, Josh and Melissa will be joined by the film's executive producer, Mark Ruffalo, and others for a live Q&A. Next week, our guest will be filmmaker and teaching artist Jackie George to talk about the new Eerie Dance Film Festival. Make sure you follow us on social media. You'll find all the tags and links in the show notes for this episode. Until next time, this was Film Grain.